Where on earth is that? Uh, learning the books of the Bible is a useful skill for every believer. And uh, so I encourage you, like I probably even some of us adults, maybe we don't want to admit it, but we even struggle, don't we, right, in the books of the Bible a bit. And so I encourage you, uh, hide the order of God's word in your heart uh, by learning it. So you'll find Micah. Hopefully you found your way there. We are in Micah chapter 5 this morning, and uh, Lord willing, we will uh, be able to get all the way through it this morning. So follow along with me as I begin reading in verse 1. Uh, we'll read through it all, and then we'll see uh, what God has for us this morning. Uh, so Micah wrote, he said, Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem Ebrathah, though, you you, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. And he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And he will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. We will raise against them seven shepherds, even eight commanders, who will rule the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with drawn sword. He will deliver us from the Assyrians when they invade our land and march across our borders. The remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass which do not wait for anyone or depend on man. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which mauls and mangles as it goes, and no one can rescue Your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies and all your foes will be destroyed. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will destroy your horses from among you and demolish your chariots. I will destroy the cities of your land and tear down all your strongholds. I will destroy your witchcraft and you will no longer cast spells. I will destroy your idols and your sacred stones from among you. You will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. And I will uproot from you, from among you, your Asherah poles when I demolish your cities. I will take vengeance and anger and wrath on the nations that have not obeyed me. Well, uh, ever since Panera Bread uh, came up with a coffee subscription plan, uh, the Fern Creek Panera is now my office. I call it my Fern Creek office. You've probably heard me talk about it already. My children affectionately refer to it as my watering hole. And uh, uh, so, so I, there's, there's a particular desk that I, that I sit at. It's near the door. And this week, as I was sitting there uh, working, I saw a gentleman making his way. He had parked in the handicapped parking spot right there in front of the doors. And he got out of, the, uh, out of his car and uh, had a pair of crutches and he had um, one leg and another half a leg. 
and he uh, starts making his way to the door. And again, I was kind of in that quandary. I thought, you know, some people are, are, are rather proud and they don't want assistance, and so what, what do I do? But I decided on this particular occasion, I got up and I, and I helped, I opened the door for him. And he thanked me for it. I went back to my desk and he went and ordered a cup of coffee. Then he makes his way back to me and, and he said, do you mind if I, I sit here? I said, absolutely. And then he said, he said, can I ask you a question? And he, I said, sure. And he pulls out his iPhone and he said, and he starts asking me a technological question about his iPhone. And I said, you are asking the wrong person. I said, I'm sorry. My wife would be a better fit for this question. And uh, he asked me, he asked me, um, actually, I asked him his name and uh, he said, my name's Michael. I said, really? I said, my name's Michael too. And of course that brightened his day. And then he just began to share some of his life story with me. He shared with me how four years ago he was in a uh, motorcycle accident, and, uh, and which is the reason why he has uh, lost half of his, his leg, and uh, shared me about a, a dear friend of his who, uh, within the past 10 years, um, passed away rather unexpectedly. And um, then he, sh he went on and he shared with me how uh, recently he was diagnosed with leukemia. And he, he then he, he shared with me, he, he said, um, he said, as the doctor is sharing with me this diagnosis, he said, I sat there. He said, I was looking to the ground and I was just shaking my head. And I, I said to the doctor, I said, doctor, I said, can you just give me something to hang on to? Can, can you just give me some bit of good news? Those were his words. He said, doctor, give me something to hang on to. Because isn't that what we want? when we find ourselves in times of desperation, in times of discouragement, in times of despair. It's not as if we, we necessarily want the entire situation to be fixed, but instead it's just we're looking for something to hang on to. We're looking for that, that bit of hope that we can grab a hold of and say that even in the midst of this trial, even in the midst of this heartache and this difficulty, I'll hold on to this. And as we're continuing through this book of Micah, and we, we've learned, haven't we, right? As I, as I warned you somewhat at the beginning of this series that almost 80% of the book of Micah is doom and gloom. It's, it's Micah as God's mouthpiece. Again, remember, Micah's a prophet of the Lord. And so he is speaking on behalf of God. And so, so Micah is sharing these words of judgment, of coming judgment. Again, at this time, it was the divided kingdom. You had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So this is, these are years after Solomon's reign, and, and we had, and we had all, all, of this, um, all of this rampant sin that was taking place uh, within the northern, this idolatry, uh, this, this, as, as we see there at the end, this witchcraft, right? They're, they're turning to all of these idols, these self-made uh, means of worship, trusting in things other than God. And so God says, I will judge you because of that. In the northern kingdom, as we know and as we've learned, uh, God used the, the empire of Assyria uh, to carry them off into exile. And then uh, later, about 125 years later, God brings the Babylonians and they then are a means of judgment against the southern kingdom, Judah. And so Micah he steps into the scene there as the Assyrians are marching, are, are headed toward the northern kingdom. And as uh, he, he's, he's primarily speaking to that southern kingdom, to Judah. 
And he is warning them. He is saying, watch and see what is taking place in the northern kingdom is coming to you as well. It's God's judgment. So again, all throughout this this tunnel of great darkness, what we see is there is great light at the end. That there's hope. Is that in, in many different ways, several times, Micah gives the people something to hang on to. He gives them a truth. He gives them promises to hang on to as they find themselves in this dark, dark season. This morning, the big idea is this. The Christ child who came is coming again as the conquering king. This is the promise this morning for us to hang on to. This is the promise that even during this Advent season, right, we hang on to these promises. We hang on to God's promises. And so we find ourselves, again, he's, we're, we're going to get a little bit of a glimpse of the Christ child, and then we're going to get a, a whole lot of a glimpse of the coming conquering king. Chapter 5 begins with, again, it begins with a, a brief and a, a stern warning. Last week, Jesse did such a wonderful job preaching and, and opening up for us chapter 4 and the hope, right? That was a, a hopeful message that we had. Here in verse 1 again, just for a brief moment, Micah is going to remind them of this stern warning of God. And so go ahead and look there in your copy of God's Word. I hope you have one open there in your lap so you can follow along and take notes the word that Micah gives to the people is this, is marshal your troops when? Now. In other words, muster or gather your troops, send out the alarm, and don't wait to do it, but instead do it now. He says, marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. What we have to understand and, and keep in mind is that the Assyrian army that conquered, that carried off into exile the northern kingdom, also made headway into the southern kingdom. It also at one point in time actually surrounds Jerusalem and lays a siege against Jerusalem and so oftentimes we think of Babylon or yeah the Babylonian empire is the one that that carried off the 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 southern kingdom into exile but we we also sometimes we forget is that the Assyrians also made way into the southern kingdom and so Micah is letting them know is that a, a siege is laid against us and then he goes on he says they will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. So we see here in this verse, Micah is reverting to a warning of God's coming judgment, and he's giving an instruction to them for immediate action. He's saying, muster the troops at once, do it now. Right? Micah is speaking of an impending siege by a foreign army. And a siege is the process of an army surrounding a city, completely surrounding the city. And, and by surrounding the city, they would cut off the supply lines coming in and, and going out of the city, and they would methodically attack the city walls. A siege, such as described here, could sometimes last for years, depending on what supplies the city had already within its walls and depending on the resolve of the city that was under siege. And then we also see her at the end of verse 1, uh, Micah says they will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. Well, what Micah and what God is, is saying is that humiliation is in view as, 
as Micah prophesies that Israel's ruler, their judge, the king at that time, is going to be struck on the cheek with a rod, which was a bitter insult. The prophet Isaiah even referred to the Assyrian army as a rod. So it could be that Micah's prophecy here that he's giving is describing a helpless situation that the people of Jerusalem are experiencing against the Assyrians who have carried off the northern kingdom but now are seeking to carry off the southern kingdom. Even Israel and Judah, even though they put forth their best line of defense, muster the troops, even though they put forth their best line of of defense in those troops, they're not able to stand against them. There'll be no match for the Assyrian army and the coming humiliation. So then the likely question is this, who is going to save us? Who will save us then? Or what promise are we going to hang on to? What promise will we hang on to? And then it's then in end of verse 2 where we are now presented with this familiar verse in particular at this time of the year. It's here where Micah gives God's promise of a coming king. King Jesus, the one who will rule and shepherd his people. And in verse 2, we learn of Jesus coming out of Bethlehem. This is the prophesied Christmas story of Jesus' first coming. Follow along with me there in verse 2. He says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. We have to remember that Micah prophesied this 700 years prior to Jesus' birth. Micah and Isaiah lived at the same period of time. They were prophets to some of the same groups of people. And these are prophecies that were declared 700 years prior to. And they were fulfilled on that first Christmas night. And so in answering the question that arises out of verse 1, who then is going to save us? What promise can we hang on to? God gives the people the promise of a Savior who will be born. But you'll just have to wait 700 years. (laughs) The people didn't know God's timeline, but they held on to his promises. They were confident in his faithfulness that God keeps his promises. Church, do you ever feel, do you ever grow impatient towards God's promises? Right, I I shared this a, a few weeks ago, how we are an impatient people and how everything in this world trains us to be impatient people. And it should be a spiritual discipline of ours. It should be a regular prayer request where we ask the Lord and say, God, teach me to be a patient person, not only with these people, but maybe even more importantly, help me to be patient with you. They were waiting for this promise that's declared here in Micah chapter 5. They waited 700 years for it to be declared. Most of us struggle to wait seven minutes. 700 years is a long time. Even for Norma over here, that's a long time, isn't it? 
verse three then is an important, and, and we're, not going to, we're not going to spend much time on verse two. Maybe there'll be opportunity here getting closer to Christmas for us to dig into that a little bit more. That might be our text for Christmas Eve Eve. We'll see. But, but we're, we're going to carry on. And, and so, so verse two really is talking about Jesus' first coming, about the Christmas account, the Christmas story that we celebrate. Verse three, though, is an important transitional verse that then points us to consider the second coming of Jesus. That tells us to consider Jesus' return, which we are still anticipating, which we still wait on. Right? Every December, when we celebrate Advent season, we, we often our minds are drawn to the advent of the Christ child of verse 2. We're waiting on verse 2. But the rest of our year, guess what, is an Advent 2, is an Advent as well, the, the other, other 11 months, because what are we waiting on? We're waiting on Jesus' return. Right? What we need to remember is that every day of our lives is another day of the Advent season of the coming, conquering King. Every night when we go to bed, we should fall asleep knowing that the final resurrection day is still coming. And each morning, we should throw open the curtains. We should step outside our homes with a gaze fixed on the heavens and declare, today could be the day of Christ's return. Come, Lord Jesus. Church, is that a promise that you hang on to? Is that a promise that you hang on to? is that Jesus, the conquering King, who came first as the Christ child, that He is coming again. And so verse 3 then helps kind of transition us from His first coming in verse 2 then to His second coming that is described in verses 4 through 15. And so look there in verse 3, okay? He, He says this, He says, Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. Now, a helpful illustration for us when we think about uh, the prophecies of the Old Testament, uh, when we think about them to be, of being fulfilled, think about them in this way. Think of them as mountain peaks, that the mountain peaks are different prophecies that are declared in the past. And so this summer, as my family had the wonderful opportunity to travel out west and be able to see some absolutely gorgeous and stunning mountains, probably one of the highlights of our trip, at least for me, was the Grand Tetons. And as you're approaching that incredible mountain range, from a distance, the mountain peaks look incredibly, they look so close together, right? right? From a distance, and you think, oh, wow, that's, that's not too far. You can stick your finger up there and almost trace how, how close they seem to be. But the closer you get, as you drive up to them, you realize, oh, wait a second. There's a lot of miles that stretch between those mountain peaks. There's a lot of time that goes that it would take to get from that mountain peak to this mountain peak. And so as we think about these prophecies, right? think about Micah who is making these prophecies that God is giving these prophecies to 700 and, and many years prior. And so it's like he's driving up to this mountain range and he has thousands of years condensed here in verse 3, 
for us. He has thousands of years condensed because when he says, therefore Israel will be abandoned, he is saying, okay, he has just told us that the Christ child is yet to come. Okay, so there's a mountain range out there and one of the peaks is the Christ child. But yet he backs up and he says, therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time Okay, until, until that time. And so another mountain peak over here is that they'll be carried off into exile. Is that God will allow them to get, to experience his judgment. And God will abandon them in that he will allow them to be carried off into exile. And then, so he says, therefore Israel will be abandoned until when? Until the time when she who is in labor bears a son. And so there's another mountain peak. Right? And that when Jesus comes as the first Christ child, and then he says, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. Here's a third mountain peak then over here that is speaking of Jesus' soon return, of the day when, when, when he will gather up all of his church, not only those believers who are children of Jacob, who are in the family line of Jacob, the Jews, but those of us who have been adopted in, who have been grafted in, we will join together with them on that day when the conquering king comes again. And again, so from a distance, right, you look at chapter 3 and you're like, man, that seems like a very condensed time. But really, as you get closer to the mountain range, you realize that those mountain peaks, there's miles, there's hundreds of years between them. And so he's transitioning now. Again, verse 2 is the coming Christ child. Now verse 3 then, he takes us in to the conquering king. You see, we are living between the two mountain peaks of Jesus' birth and his second coming. And so starting in verses 4 and the verses that follow, Micah is going to give us a glimpse of the light coming at the end of the dark tunnel. What is Micah doing? He's going to give us some promises to hang on to. He's going to give us some promises to hang on to as we anticipate. Micah is going to give us these important words of encouragement to those of us who, like those in verse 1, who realize that our backs are up against the wall. Who do we trust? Who do we turn to? Micah is going to declare that there is one who is coming. One who has come in the Christ child and who is coming again. That there is one who we can trust in. And that who's going to bring ultimate victory. Even though at this time, it might seem as if maybe we've lost the battle. These verses are going to remind us that the conquering king has won the war. And so let's look at several promises, shall we? The first promise is this, is what is this conquering king, right? What are some of these promises that we can hang on to that that Micah is now going to give us as words of encouragement. The, the first promise is that he prom- it's the promise of peace and security. And isn't this what the people wanted? Right? As, as the Assyrian army is coming, as the Babylonians are, are starting to sharpen their sabers as well. They, they would want peace and security. And so Micah then, he continues on with this, these words of hope and encouragement. And look there in, verses, in verse 4. He says, he will judge between many peoples. Again, this is the conquering king who is coming. It says he will, he will, he will stand. I, I got a, he- a little bit ahead of myself. There, let, let's look there. It says, uh, verse 3, Therefore Israel will be abandoned. There's the mountain peaks. Then jumping into verse 4, it says, He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. He says, And they will live securely 
for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. In verse 5, it says, and he will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. We will raise against them seven shepherds, even eight commanders, who will rule the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with drawn sword. He will deliver us from the Assyrians when they invade our land and march across our borders. Right? And so what, what is being pictured here is that, again, Jesus is now being pictured, again, because Jesus is the conquering king. He's the Christ child who came first on that Christmas evening. He's coming again as the conquering king. And here we have Jesus being pictured as the good shepherd. He's the one who knows his sheep. This conquering king lays his life down for his sheep. Right? He, he talks about that he will stand. There in verse 4, he says, he will stand and shepherd his flock. What a marvelous thought to consider that Jesus, this conquering king, the good shepherd, as, as we're, we also learn in Isaiah, he's the prince of peace, that Jesus knows his sheep by name and that he knows you intimately and that he cares deeply for you. This conquering king is like a shepherd, is a shepherd who knows us and he will bring to us peace and security. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 10 through 11, we're given another beautiful picture of the Lord as our loving shepherd, as this conquering king. Where in Isaiah 40, Isaiah writes, he says, See the sovereign Lord, he comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. He says, see, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd, right? So we see this mighty arm, who also, this conquering king who also tends to us like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arm, and he carries them close to his heart, and he gently leads those that have young. See, we live in a world, don't we, where we manage our profile and we manage our public images. We put our best forward because we fear what others would think if they truly knew us. But there's a reassuring peace. There's a unique sense of security here that when we realize that the conquering king who is still yet to come, Jesus is the good shepherd of his flock. He knows us. He knows all about us, right? What do you tend to try to hide from the public? What is it about you that you try to, to not let other people know? Jesus knows that about you. He cares for you in spite of that. And he loves you still. And notice Isaiah says, he carries us close to his heart. That this conquering king, who's also the good shepherd, who is coming to bring peace and security, right? Think about the peace and security that we experience with this idea, with this reality that Jesus carries us close to his heart. You see, there's a day coming when we will live securely. For the Israelites who looked out on the marching Assyrian armies heading their direction, the promise of security would overcome their greatest fears. There's a peace and a security that's coming. Let's look then at verses 5 and 6. 
where, it, where Micah continues. He says, and he will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. We will raise against them seven shepherds, even eight commanders, who will rule the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with drawn sword. He will deliver us from the Assyrians when they invade our land and march across our borders. Micah is emphasizing here in verses 5 and 6 how Jesus will ultimately deliver us from all worldly forces. He is telling us that there is there's no world power that will be capable of standing up against the coming conquering king. Now Micah here refers to Nimrod and let me just tell you the the other evening as our family sat around the table after dinner we pulled out Micah chapter 5 and we were reading Micah chapter 5 and there were several times when our middle school aged boys had to chuckle and uh, one of them well I'll tell you the other one away from the pulpit, but this, the one in particular, where another one that they chuckled was when the name Nimrod came up, right? Nimrod, they, they chuckled, they're like, who, who would use the name Nimrod, right? Because, I mean, that's kind of what we use. Oh, you're such a Nimrod. Have any of you ever used that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Micah's like, or Michael's like a hearty amen with that. Yeah, Nimrod. And, and so, but what we have to understand is this reference to Nimrod for those middle school-aged young men and women, uh, the, the reference to Nimrod is actually Nimrod, bonus question, right? Does anyone know who Nimrod was? Uh, yeah, to, he, he was declared as a mighty man. Yes and no, he was declared as a mighty man. He was actually, Nimrod was the grandson of Noah. Next time you're on Jeopardy, okay, and you'll know this, right? Uh, when it comes to the, the, the topic line of Genesis or Old Testament, when it says, who was Nimrod? You, or you can say, who was Nimrod? He was the grandson of Noah, and he was referred to, great Laura, as a mighty warrior in Genesis chapter 10. But it was Nimrod, the grandson of Noah, who built the great cities of Babel that later became known as Babylon. And Nimrod also who helped establish the great city of Nineveh, which we know, as we have learned, was the capital of what empire? Assyria, right? And so this reference to Nimrod here, which I think is just absolutely fantastic, uh, is, is fascinating, is that when, when God says, right, when he talks about Nimrod, he's not just using a cheap name that we call people who make stupid mistakes, but the land of Nimrod, that this conquering king will be, be able to overcome the land of Nimrod or these great cities that have conquered, that, that God is using as his means of judgment on these kingdoms, that this conquering king will be able to overcome these great world powers, that even with drawn swords, these great cities are incapable of standing against Jesus when he returns. In church, there's a peace and a security that we have in that truth of that coming peace and security, that final peace and security. It then gives us a peace that passes all understanding even today. Why? Because we hang on to these promises. The next promise then, all right? I've used up a lot of my time already this morning. Let's make our way to point number two. The next promise is the promise of refreshment and reversal. <clears throat> the, the promise of refreshment and reversal. And honestly, this is probably my favorite point this morning. Uh, 
we see here in verses 7 through 9, the prophet now then, he's turning his attention to the remnant of Jacob or those believers, those who, who are, have believed in the promises of God. Verse 7, it says, The remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like the showers of the grass, which do not wait for anyone or depend on a man. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which mauls and mangles as it goes, and no one can rescue. Your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies, and all your foes will be destroyed. We also have to understand that in some of these Old Testament prophecies, they have been completely fulfilled. They are currently even now being fulfilled. And some of them also are awaiting a future fulfillment. And sometimes those prophecies are just continually ongoing, being fulfilled. And this particular promise here uh, has started its fulfillment in the exile and continues to have an experience of fulfillment until that gr- the great reversal that we'll read about or that we just read about and we'll learn about here shortly. We see that in the future day of Jesus' return, Jesus, the conquering king, is going to regather. He's going to gather his remnant or those believers who remain. In fact, the theme throughout the book of Micah is that there will always be a remnant. Right? What is a remnant? A remnant is part of a greater whole. If you go to a carpet mart or a carpet store, they sell remnants, which are leftovers from a much larger carpet. And so when, when we see this word remnant mentioned in the book of Micah or there in the Old Testament, it means that there's, there's a part of the greater whole that the remnant is not all the believers, but there's always a remnant available that will maintain, that will continue on. And he's talking about a remaining portion of those who have believed the Lord. And this theme is important because it gives us hope to those who are listening to Micah. Right? As Micah is saying, there's, a, there's going to be a remnant of of Jacob because as they are carried off into exile hope is going to be they're they're going to be hopeful knowing that God through his remnant is going to keep his promises is that they will not be utterly destroyed is that this remnant will remain that God holds to his covenant and, and we can be hopeful that if there's a remnant, that if, if there's always a remnant, right? If, if the remnant were to ever run dry, then who, right? Then why would Jesus Christ return to, to gather who? So, so Jesus, we know that Jesus is going to return to gather up his remnant. And so what it seems here, it seems that Micah is declaring is that the remnant of believers here in these verses are going to be a source of blessing and refreshment to other nations. It talks about them being scattered throughout the world. And how are they going to be scattered? They're going to be scattered by being carried off into exile. So, so again, this promise here where he says that you, the remnant... The remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many people. So you're, you're carried off into exile. You're no longer huddled around here in Jerusalem, but now you're taken off into these foreign lands. You're, you're scattered about. But even though you're scattered about, what are they going to be? What does he say? You'll be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass. 
Think about dew or rain showers in a Middle Eastern area that is often dry. The picture is this, is that as they are carried off into exile, there's a responsibility that they have. Is that even in the midst of their captors, they are to be a means of refreshment to them. They're, they're, they're to, the prophecy, this, this is, this is a, there, there's this purpose that even as they're carried into exile, God says, I will use you as dew, as rain, in hopes of springing something up. I, re- I believe that this description continues even for us today. That this is a description of our role in the world in which we live. That as we live out as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, we are to have an effect on the lives of those people among whom we live. As we're scattered around in, a, in, in our different neighborhoods, that are, one of our tasks is to be like the, the refreshing dew of the morning or a refreshing rain shower on a hot, of, of a hot summer dry day. That we and the lives of other people should provide nourishment. It's the type of nourishment that begins with a few drops at a time and then the skies open at a downpour of blessing on others. One drop at a time, we are given the opportunity to minister to the lives of other people. We're given the opportunity to, to provide refreshment and, and to provide relief to help others grow in the Lord, to help them experience the joy that we have in living for Christ Jesus. And together, as a church, when we join our efforts together, what happens? We're able to soak broad acres of dry land, like the dew, like the rain. And Micah says that as you're carried off into exile, don't forget your role as members of the remnant. Now as well, he goes on then, doesn't he? Not only are we the due, not only, only are we the rain to those who will listen, but also then he describes that of a lion, doesn't he? Right, he says that, that we'll be among the nations in the midst of many peoples. Then he goes on uh, there in verse 8, he says, you'll also be like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep which mauls and mangles it as it goes and no one can rescue Your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies and your foes will be destroyed. It gives us this understanding. As we think about a lion, we're given this picture uh, of, and this reminder that a lion is not a domesticated animal, is he? Right? How many of you, maybe you have a kitty cat as a pet, but hopefully none of us have a lion as a pet, right? Only crazy people have lions as a pet. A lion is not a, it's, it's not a domesticated animal, and the same is true of the body of believers. Yes, we are due and rain, but at the same time, we are not domesticated by the world or its ways. Instead, we are to walk with a confidence in the Lord and that we, like a lion, we should be able to, to defend what is right and true. 
that we must not be intimidated by the world or its influences. A lion, a young lion that's walking through a sheep pasture is not intimidated, is he? We must not be intimidated by the world or its influences. And Jesus promised that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not be capable of withstanding the church's influence. And so what we see here is that the presence of believers, the presence of the remnant in the midst of of this foreign land, we are to be courageous as lions so that we can have the effect of slowing the spread of sin and pushing against the forces of worldliness simply by living as a godly witness. And so here we have this dual role that we join in with these people that Micah is speaking to. Be like the dew. Be like the raindrops. But at the same time, be courageous like a lion. We join in with this prophecy that is being fulfilled because we see that it's not been completely fulfilled because there it says, He will deliver us from the Assyrians When they invade our land and they march across our borders, there's this deliverance that's coming. Then in verse 9, he says, your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies and all your foes will be destroyed. He's speaking of a reversal. Refreshment and reversal where they're being taken into exile by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians, but there's a day coming when the conquering kings return where those roles will be reversed. And those are promises that we can hang on to. The third promise then is this. The promise of reform and holiness. That when the conquering king comes who came first as a Christ child, the third promise is that of a coming reform and reinstatement of God's holiness in His people. I think it can be quite disheartening, can't it, when we consider the current state of the church here in America as we watch congregations, as we watch them adopt worldly views, as we watch those who have claimed to follow Jesus Christ be more concerned about relevance and acceptance by the world than having a concern for holiness. It's disheartening to hear of pastors who abandon God's Word and who instead preach self-help and pragmatism. And I hope that you pray for your pastors that they would hold true to the truth of God's Word. It can be disheartening to watch those whom we love, who have claimed to love Jesus and walk with Him, how they now turn their back on Him and, and how they walk away as if at times even within the church we have completely abandoned the pursuit of holiness. But here in these final verses of chapter 5, Micah shares the promise that there's a day coming when the Lord will reform the remnant and He will restore holiness in His church, in His people. Look there in verse 10 and 15. It says, 10 through 15, He says, In that day, declares the Lord, I will destroy your horses from among you and demolish your chariots. He says, I will destroy the cities of your land and tear down all your strongholds. I will destroy your, your witchcraft and you will no longer cast spells. I will destroy your idols and your sacred stones from among you. You will no longer 
bow down to the work of your hands. I will uproot from among you your Asherah poles when I demolish your cities. I will take vengeance and anger and wrath on the nations that have not obeyed me. You, you have to notice how adamant the Lord is in his effort. Uh, for, for in those five verses, five or six verses, six different times the Lord makes it clear who's in charge. Who's in charge on that day when the conquering king returns? He declares, he says, I will do this. I will, I will, I will. As well, the sins which the Lord is going to confront on that day, those sins, right, that, 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 we've, that we've built up, those strongholds that we've established thinking this is what's going to save me, this is, this is what I'm going to hang on to, God says the conquering king is going to come and he's going to obliterate them. He's going to remove them all. It's going to be confronted. They'll be destroyed. They'll be uprooted. They'll be demolished. It's evident from this promise that God takes sin and holiness quite seriously. Doesn't it? That God takes holiness seriously. And when He comes, He is going to reform what needs to be reformed what's able to still be reformed, and he will remove what needs to be removed. It's going to be a time of the conquering king cleaning the house. We see here that on that day, Israel is going to be cured of its self-reliance. Israel is going to be cured of its idolatry. Israel is going to be cured of its false counsel of its misplaced worship, and all those nations who have disobeyed the Lord, there at the end, verse 15, what will they experience? They will experience God's anger and wrath. See, as we catch a glimpse of the coming reform and holiness here that we are promised that the conquering king is going to usher in, I think we should be reminded that our lives today, they too should be marked by an ongoing reform and pursuit of holiness. It's easy for us to be convinced that holiness no longer matters, isn't it? I've got Jesus. I've got forgiveness in my back pocket. I'm okay. I'm okay if I just go and do this. I, I understand it's not pleasing to the Lord, but I'm okay because I'll just pull out my Jesus forgives card and I'll just slap it on the table and say I'm good. We shouldn't we shouldn't take advantage of the forgiveness of our Savior as a license to sin, should we? Instead, we see here is that the conquering king is concerned about holiness and the purity and the reform of his people, of his remnant. And so if he's concerned about it in that day, then we should be concerned about it in this day. So when we read promises like these, we should what? Be encouraged to recommit our own lives to reform and holiness. We should be reminded that how we live does matter. We should be encouraged that we too should be rooting out sin from all areas of our hearts that we should no longer turn a blind eye toward our sin. We should not be involved. We should, not take, we should not take lightly the habitual sin that we might be living in. Even today. Because as those who hope in the coming conquering king, 
we live out this hope. We live out this promise that Jesus is coming. We live it out by obeying God's instructions given to us where we are told to set yourselves apart and to be holy. Why? Because God says, I am holy. And on that day when Jesus returns, we will come to realize, church, maybe you have grown tired in your pursuit of holiness. Do you ever find it hard sometimes to live for the Lord? Do you ever look around you and say, well, I feel like I'm the only guy, I'm the only gal who's truly trying to live this out? On this day, when the conquering king returns, we will be reminded that all of our striving, all of our pursuit toward holiness has not been in vain. And so what should we do? Hang on to these promises. Hang on. I wonder, church, what are the promises that you are hanging on to? This truth is that the Christ child, Micah tells us, the Christ child who came, there in verse 2, there in Bethlehem, the Christ child who came is coming again as the conquering king. He will bring to us that peace and security. He will rule over the nations. And He will restore holiness among His people. And church, these are promises that you can take to the bank and that you can hold on to. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank You that we are in this day and age where we can look back and say that You have fulfilled Your promise. You have fulfilled the prophecy of Jesus being born in Bethlehem. And God, I pray that You would help us to believe the coming prophecy, the coming truth, that Jesus is coming again. And He will come as a conquering King. Father, we believe, and yet, Lord, we need help in our unbelief. And God, I pray that what we believe, knowing that Jesus is coming as a conquering King, Father, that it would help us to live more passionate lives for You. God, help us to be the dew and the rain in the lives of other people. God, help us to be courageous as the lion to stand for what is true. God, I pray, Lord, that You would help us to pursue holiness, to turn from our sin. God, I pray that for anyone in here this morning who maybe is struggling with a habitual sin, God, that they would not take that lightly. And God, that through the power of Your Holy Spirit, they would surrender and trust in Your ways. And that they would make those changes. Lord, we thank You for Jesus. We thank You for His work on the cross. Again, another 
another event in history that has fulfilled prophecy that we can look back onto and that we can remember as a means of hope, as a promise to us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.